Welcome to RAQA Today, the podcast that puts the fun back in quality, compliance, and regulatory affairs. Here's your host, Michelle Lott. So today we're going to go through the FDA's audit approach, the medical device single audit program and that audit my model. We'll talk about ISO 1345, key differences between these three approaches and the regulations. And then lastly, we'll cover what to expect when you're inspected. The FDA actually has a a unique approach, at least for the time being, to how they approach quality management system requirements and their uh, inspection techniques. The devices can kind of at least seem like a, a afterthought from the name of the FDA, but the FDA actually regulates all things from the manufacturing, repackaging, relabeling, and import of medical devices. They also do consumer products that are radiation emitting, even things that, that you wouldn't think of that the FDA would have involvement in. The FDA has uh, reorganized their chart, their company to where now they have one super office. And they did this to ensure more of a total product life cycle approach. So the it used to be that the, the, the division or the office that evaluated products for in pre-market was totally different from the office that evaluated them and did inspections and post-market. And they recently combined those things to give uh, more of that total life cycle approach and the, the, the whole continuum of pre-market to post-market. So traditionally, FDA uh, has had a regulation called 21 CFR 820, which is the quality system regulation. Now, over the years, ISO 13485 has grown closer and closer to requirements um, of the QSR. And the QSR, at least the the FDA's public meetings and and different things where they say and interpret what they meant to say, they're like, well, they were relying on the preamble. Well, in the preamble, there was a lot of things that the preamble is not regulation. It's just the intent behind the regulation. And a lot of the things in the preamble actually had made it into ISO 1345. So over time, the quality system regulation and the ISO 1345, in terms of requirements and what the FDA really meant to say, have grown closer and closer together to the point that FDA published the a proposed rule on February 23rd of this year, proposing that they formally adopt ISO 13485 um, as a recognized standard and that it replace the quality system regulation. So this is going to be challenging. I've talked to a a lot of people um, at the FDA and the inspection division that in general are uncomfortable with ISO 13485 because they really have no formal training in it. It's a different inspection approach, different requirements, different way of thinking. And so the FDA is actually having to take upon a huge effort to educate and uh, acclimate its factors to this new methodology. 
So it can be a little like teaching an old dog new tricks. And so in this uh, proposed uh, draft regulation, there were a, a lot of things that the FDA called substantially similar. And the FDA even uh, harmonized the subparts with the um, coordinating ISO clauses. Now, the problem is, you know, with FDA substantially similar, if they're using the same terminology as they do with substantial equivalents, it means similar but different, but the differences don't raise new questions. So, you know, I, I'm very curious how substantially similar is going to really come out in practice. And I'm more interested in what is, you know, close but no cigar. So these are the things that the FDA calls out as the specific differences and the uh, ISO clauses that they align to. The FDA is going to um, either add or maintain some modifications including adding uh, signature and date requirements to be consistent with 21 CFR Part 11 for electronic record, electronic signature. They are going to uh, keep 21 CFR Part 803 for complaint reporting, medical device reporting, and servicing activities. The UDI is still going to be required they are going to uh, retain the clarification um, from Part 180 regarding the confidentiality of records that the FDA receives during an inspection. And then they are also proposing that they're going to retain the, the QSR um, requirements for labeling and packaging. So here's where it gets really interesting, and this is a bone of contention um, with FDA and some of the notified bodies, I'll, I'll explain myself in a minute, is, is the concept of this device master record versus medical device file. The medical device file was a requirement that was added for a type of record in ISO 1345-2016 version. And the medical device file, it's similar to a device master record, but it also contains regulatory documentation, intended use statements, and a lot of other requirements that you typically don't find in a device master record. You know, historically, um, a good analogy for the device master record is something, you know, akin to a a recipe of how you would go about making a device time after time. Whereas the medical device file, the way that it reads in ISO 1345, along with the way notified bodies have been interpreting it, has been more consistent with something along the lines of a device history record plus some. Now, I was just at the, the Regulatory Affair Professional Society's annual meeting, and I, I was watching a presentation on this, and one of my colleagues asked this question about to get trying to get clarity, and the consultant that was giving the presentation really didn't have a good answer because there's not one. And there just so happened to be a, a lady in the crowd that actually worked for the division of FDA that was responsible for the adoption of ISO 1345. 
And she came up to talk to us about this and clarify it for us. And the way that she explained FDA's understanding of the medical device file is that it was the medical, the device master record. And so I asked her, uh, I told her, you know, who we were, what we did, and that we manage, you know, a half dozen or more notified body audits a year. And would it surprise her to learn that notified bodies think that it contains things like your regulatory documentation and that it's more like a device history file? And um, she was really shocked that there was a difference in notified bodies interpretation. And I, I said, and also, you know, would it surprise you that every notified body that I get audited by has a different opinion about uh, what they think that this medical device file contains? And then worse than that, you can get a different audit, auditor from the same notified body year over year, have a different auditor, and they have different opinions amongst themselves. And um, so she said that she was going to take all of that to heart and go back and talk about it with her FDA colleagues and their notified body collaborators. And another thing that they said uh, was uh, that, that anytime that you see safety and efficacy referred to in FDA literature, that it's basically the same thing as safety and performance in ISO 13485. You know, in my personal opinion, there is an inherent difference in performance and being efficacious. Um, those things are, are not fundamentally the same. You could have benchtop performance data, you could meet certain specifications, but that doesn't mean that your device is ultimately efficacious and doing what, what it claims uh, it's going to do in an efficient manner. There are a lot of uncertainties and unanswered questions, like what is going to be the impact to uh, submission fees, testing costs, inspections. You know, the FDA's intended timeline at present is a year, which is woefully inadequate for the companies who aren't already in compliance with ISO 1345, because it is, it is substantially ISO 1345 is substantially more articulate and prescriptive than the quality system regulation. Um, there are things in ISO 1345 that just aren't a requirement, like quality manuals uh, is a requirement in ISO 1345. There's nowhere in the quality system regulation that actually requires a quality manual. And that, that's just one of, of several uh, differences. Yet last but not least, what about QCIT or the quality system inspection technique? This is the FDA's unique methodology to conduct uh, inspections. It's very different than the ISO 1345 checklist. Um, and we'll go through and compare and contrast those concepts. Quality system inspections technique or QCIT, it's a systemic approach that's uh, unique to the FDA. And it literally feels and looks like you're on a merry-go-round because um, it, it flows in and out from one system to another system and back again. Um, that's where it can kind of feel like you're going around in a loop. 
So this is what QCIT looks like. The FDA considers management with executive responsibility at the hub of the entire quality system. You have got seven, if you include management, you've got seven primary um, subsystems, and then those uh, two of those subsystems have uh, further specific things that the FDA looks at um, as a subset. So if we go through an example, and these are questions straight out of QCIT, and it's the process and the question asking order that FDA um, will follow. And you can see it, it goes uh, and they start collecting objective evidence at each one of these stages. And you go to the kind of move on. So you will give evidence, then the FDA will either think it meets what they asked for, they'll ask another question, or they'll decide it doesn't meet and they may go down um, a different leg of the flow chart. And then eventually they're gonna take the evidence that they've gained down to this point, and then they're gonna go do the reality check in other subsystems. You can see here in the inspection technique guide, it specifically says, go to inspection of design controls from management controls. So QCIT is a systemic approach. So we start in one, subs in one subsystem and we, we go uh, directly to another subsystem. And then we may loop back again, depending on the nature of the objective evidence that we find there. And you can tell that it gives you instructions on how, how to, to move back and forth between these subsystems and the points where you should have a conversation with management. So this is an example of now we moved into the design controls. Again, we go through this very ordered list of questions. Now, it's important to understand these are, this is not a checklist. This is like a little bit more of an open-ended where there might not be any one procedure or documentation. And it's really more based off of a company's understanding of and ability to demonstrate how they're fulfilling the, these requirements and how their systems are working together as a whole. Oh, and you can tell here it go, it, it's gonna take us to the other subsystems from design controls. And so another big difference is FDA typically they they have a, they they have limited visibility to certain types of data for your internal audits, your supplier audits, and your management reviews. They're really just limited to your agendas, your sign-in sheets. They can't see reports. They can't see minutes or presentations. What they, they can see, though, is your corrective and preventive actions, which most people's internal audit process feeds into their CAPA process. They can see your supplier corrective actions, and then they can see the raw data which you use to prepare your management review. There are several types of FDA audits and inspections. The first is a, a risk-based approach, and then there's targeted. Um, the targeted will be, uh, you know, the term is also called for cause, and this could be some complaints that FDA received from the field or recalls. 
It may be uh, unannounced, they generally are, or they're announced with limited advance notice. And so you have to be ready at all times for them to walk in the door because they can. And I've been in many uh, companies where they did. The inspector presents uh, the facility with what's called a Form 482 or Notice of Inspection. And they present their um, badge or credentials. And the manufacturer is required by law to give access to records and to allow the FDA to copy and remove the records from the premises um, if necessary. Pre-market consequences, um, if you fail to follow the QSR and GMPs, it can be increased submission um, and testing costs. It can cost you more time to market. You can get a non-substantially non equivalent decision, and then it'll just leave a bad taste in the FDA's mouth with a bad first impression. And post-market, it can lead to you having more frequent inspections. It can lead to warning letters and other FDA actions. And it can also serve, yield uh, legal actions like fines, product seizure. They can force you to close a facility. It can escalate to a consent decree. And then the FDA comes and moves into your facility. So a lot of uh, negative and costly things, both um, intangible and intangible, intangible um, cost as well to your reputation in the public. You know, just think of what people think of uh, Phillips and the ventilator situation now. So after the inspection, there will be three possible results. It could result in no action indicated or NAI, voluntary, voluntary action indicated, or official action indicated. So the, the voluntary action is um, basically the FDA wants you to fix it, but they're not gonna take any further administrative or regulatory action. And official action indicated will be, there will be some sort of escalation within FDA. Best practice after an inspection, you know, be responsive to the findings you have 15 days to develop a plan with timelines and deliverables. You need to conduct a systemic review that includes corrective actions of more than just what the FDA looked at. It really needs to look at the, the system or systems as a whole and the way they interact because an inspection or an audit is just a snapshot shot in time. Your responses need to be clear and organized. I saw a company one time that just sent the FDA binder after binder of useless and confusing responses that were just a lot of data that told FDA that they were wrong and, and, and they weren't. And the, F, the company eventually, the FDA said, look, quit, quit sending us all this. Here's your warning letter. Here's your import alert. And you, we're not going to call you. You call us when you think that you are ready to resolve all this and we'll come back out and do another inspection. So provide reasonable and timely updates on your progress all the way up through your closure so that you, the FDA has, has a record that you, um, at least within your own um, files, have considered the matter closed and remediated. And then on the FDA side, they will come and do a re-inspection 
for formal closure. What happens if you don't appropriately respond to um, 483s? Now, 483s is the type of form that FDA writes up their findings on. And that, that's just the, the number of the form and in industry is just referred to as a 483. So you're going to get a 483. You'll have an opportunity to respond. If you respond appropriately, that's usually where it stops. If you have an inadequate response, you're going to have another discussion with FDA. If you can resolve it and your corrective actions are, become adequate, then that's going to be where it stops. If you continue to have an inadequate response, like that company that I just uh, described, you are going to get a warning letter that you are going to have another opportunity to respond to. Should you choose to continue the inadequate response process, that's when it can get escalated to something like a consent decree or one of those other consequences that we discussed a few slides ago. So the CDRH ombudsman, this is a way to appeal if you feel like you have been treated unfairly or that you cannot come to some sort of agreement. And so there, the FDA has a formal office and a formal process to investigate complaints from industry and to facilitate the resolution of disputes. So moving on to ISO 13485. There's a fundamental difference in, go in governance structure between uh, FDA. For context, notified bodies are in the medical device space, typically the ones that issue ISO 13485 certificates. And, and the European Union requires an ISO 13485 certificate. Or if you don't have one, you've got to do almost more work than it is to get a, cer a certificate. So to bring medical products to market in the U.S., you know, F the FDA, it's the FDA. It's the only agency that you can go through to get your products cleared or approved. However, in Europe, notified bodies are the ones that review the technical documentation. And once they issue you a CE mark, they have to defend your technical documentation to the competent authorities in Europe. So in Europe, there are more than 30 different responsible competent authorities and the notified body might need to interact with one or all, depending on your product and your post-market history. So you can see this is like having, you know, more than 30 FDAs where you have to uh, potentially have to, you know, interact with on your product. Also with FDA, you know, bringing your product to market is pretty much a one-stop shop, like one, one time you go through and unless you make changes, you really don't have to um, do another submission. However, in Europe, you're going to be asked to, or not asked, the notified bodies will review your documentation every three to five years, and it has to be maintained in a way that is state-of-the-art, and all your testing has to be updated periodically. 
So FDA is essentially an arranged marriage. You know, you are going to have to uh, play nice with the FDA to bring your products to market in the U.S. Uh, therefore, your first impressions really matter with the FDA. Whereas the notified bodies are private for-profit entities in the European Union. And there is, uh, I, I make a joke that it's a little bit more like dating on twin Tinder about how to pick a notified body and if it's the right fit for you. And there's a series of questions that you need to ask yourself and depending or ask the notified body and depending on their answer will um, help guide if they are the right fit or not uh, to, to designate your product with a CE mark. So there are two main processes to the ISL audits. There's, they call them stage one and stage two. Stage one is primarily a documentation review to make sure that the scope of your quality management system and its procedures are not only in place, but adequate to the activities that you're conducting. And then there will be, you know, usually an on-site uh, portion where they're actually reviewing records and looking, uh, looking at a, objective evidence about how you fulfill that documentation. So the auditor will follow the sections of ISO 1345 and they're going to gather evidence of compliance. But this is a checklist based and it's a very lengthy checklist and the auditors have to have something to write basically for every single question on their checklist. So the auditors really spend more time recording what they look at instead of actually auditing it for adequacy, auditing it for connection to other systems. Um, in my personal opinion, I don't think an ISO 1345 audit is is really as meaningful as that systemic FDA style inspection. The goal of an ISO audit is to determine that the extent that the quality management system is established, determine if the audit criteria are being met, determine if the quality management system has been effectively implemented, and determine if after it was implemented, is it being effectively maintained? So we just talked about this, um, the kind of the, the workflow for the ISO audit, you know, they, they move from your policies and procedures down to your records and back up. This, you have your stage one and stage two audits. So the way this works is you'll have your, your stage one or your surveillance one, your surveillance two, and then you'll go through a recertification cycle, and then you will start the whole process all over again. It's also important to know before you decide to get an ISO 1345 certificate, what purpose do you need that certificate for? And who do you need it for? There are different types of organizations you can get one from. There is auditing organization. We'll talk about um, Metasat next. An auditing organization audits to ISO 13485 uh, compliance. They 
also include the countries that participate in the MEDISAP certificate. And they, they use 1345 as a base, and then they add in the country-specific requirements of where you're selling. On top of that, they don't issue device registrations, and it is currently limited. Although they have observers, there's only five official per participants. A registrar, it also audits to 1345 for compliance. It's much faster and cheaper than either an audit organization or a notified body. They cannot issue a Metasap certificate or a CE mark or a MDR quality system certificate. This certificate is very limited in its utility. It's mostly useful for business purposes. You know, maybe if your, your customers want one or you want to advertise it for marketing purposes. Whereas a notified body, they also can issue an ISO 1345 cert. They can issue CE marks under MDR. They can issue quality management system certificates under MDR. They may or may not be able to conduct a Metasap audit, depending if they're also designated as an audit organization. And this may be the best all-around solution for multiple markets. If you can find a notified body that's also an audit organization and you can knock out all those out with maybe just one extra audit day. Problem is that this can be, that notified bodies can be quite expensive and slow. And right now uh, with MDR, the notified bodies are extremely resource constrained. And so it's, it's really hard to get on their dance card. So the medical device single audit program is currently Japan, Canada, Australia, Brazil, and the United States, you know, they were not going to let some of the world leading countries, you know, come to the forefront of global harmonization. And I think when Canada kind of drew the line in the sand and said that they were no longer going to accept an ISO certificate alone, that they were only going to accept a certificate issued under Metasap, the FDA really kind of stood up and took notice and took the program seriously and became one of the participating countries. The audit model is also called a sequence, and it's intended to be a single audit across multiple markets. The goal is to maintain a single quality management system for products across those markets. It was originally developed by the International Medical Device Regulatory Forum, and its observers, so not participants, include the EU, the UK, and a WHO. And, and every year that goes by, there's more observers to this process. So, but, but it is closed in terms of number of participants. So it will be up to individual countries to decide if they're going to accept a Metasap certificate and then if they're going to require maybe a small scope of audit for their, their countries. The regulations covered by Metasap include the 1345, the quality system regulation, the Australian Therapeutic Goods um, Directives, Brazilian Good Manufacturing Practices, Japan Ordinance, and Canada. Like I, I mentioned, they replaced their 
can, it's called CAMDACAS, which was their regulatory, um, the type of certificate extension you had to get to your 1345 with Metasap in January of 2019. Types of inspections versus Metasap audits, FDA, where you can use your Metasap certificate with the FDA is that has to be a routine abbreviated or a routine comprehensive. Now, FDA says they, they come to companies every two years or so. I don't think I've ever seen a company where they were doing routine audits every two years. The only time I've seen them come on that frequency or more frequent to a company was a for-cause inspection. I'll talk about that in a minute. Metasap audits, they're on a three-year cycle of annual audits. You will have your uh, initial, then you'll have your surveillance, and then a recertification. They can be special and they can be unannounced. So they're major subsystems. They have basically seven major subsystems. They have four major subsystems. And then those four major subsystems lead into three other supporting systems. And they, the, the audit model says that risk management is pervasive in all seven, and they expect to see some sort of risk management activities conducted throughout all the, the subsystems. So this is organized between chapters and tasks. So each one of those subsystems has a chapter dedicated to it. Within the chapter, they will have a task that is applicable to all the markets or universal for all the ones that are participating. And then their next task will be an ISO specific requirement. And then those might be broken up further into the, if they have an applicable to all markets, you might get subtasks that have got nuances that might be slightly different from country to country. So their grading scale uh, for non-conformances, uh, in the, the actual guide or companion guide, it's called, uh, they, this graph actually came out of there. They have a score of uh, one to five. And they didn't even put five on their heat map because I guess at that point, you're just burning the, the factory down. So, you know, anytime. And then also they are going to prioritize between the impact, the occurrence, and if it's a first issue or a repeat issue, things can escalate. Um, regardless of seriousness, if they find things, you know, multiple years in a row. So this is a significant difference. FDA accepts in Metasap audit reports as a substitute for FDA routine surveillance inspections. The report. So the audit organization actually is whenever you get one of these Metasap audits, they create a report and they send a copy of that report to each of the participating countries in which you're selling product. So the audit organization actually sends this directly to FDA themselves. FDA will audit the full report, not just the certificate. Now, this is significant because right now, under the quality system regulation, 
They are not allowed to audit the content of management reviews, supplier audits, um, internal audits, but they will audit those things in the Metasap audit report. They do not send these to FDA redacted. So just be aware that, that you know, this will be a little bit of an open kimono type situation with the FDA compared to the scope of your audits now. Also, because they only accept these, the reports for in lieu of FDA routine inspections, all FDA has to do is say that their audit is non-routine and then they come in to do an inspection. I had a, a company that was based in Canada, so they had their Metasap, and FDA came to see them fairly frequently, not necessarily on the two-year, but it, despite them turning their audit report in, because they said, well, that this isn't a routine inspection. This is a risk-based inspection. Now, FDA doesn't consider risk-based necessarily based on anything that your company has said or done, but it's also can be just the type of products that you make. Whether your products have been associated with any events or not, if it's a product that the FDA is paying attention to across the industry, they will say, well, this is risk-based, it's for cause, so we're not going to accept your, your Metasap report and we're going to come see you every year, every other year, whatever it is. So some important differences in all of these types of audits and organization is that the FDA are badge carrying or card carrying members of the U.S. government. They, you know, many of them are actually commissioned officers by the uh, HHS. At the very least, they come in if they're not commissioned officers with some very pretty hefty issued government credentials. Whereas the uh, registrars are just card carriers. You're going to get a business card at the beginning of this, but it's not the weight of a, a government a, a official showing up for an inspection. FDA will show up with no agenda. Um, because they are there to carry out uh, the QCIT and they are going to follow the queries outlined in the QCIT. Audits of, of the requirements to 21 CFR 820 and they are going to issue you a Form 483. For the Medical Device Single Audit Program, they will have an agenda that is very specific about each section, each chapter, and how much time that they need to spend on that chapter to be able to get through their entire checklist. The auditor was gonna follow that task-based model. It is going to result in a ISO certificate to 1345-2016 plus the five select country requirements if you're marketing in all five. It results in a graded um, audit report and that grade may impact the uh, certificate being accepted or not in certain uh, geographies. Notified bodies also will show up with an agenda based off of the time that they have to allocate to each section and how many auditors there are. Notified bodies also have to spend a certain amount of audit hours 
depending on the size of your facility. They also have a checklist. They are, this will result in a series of major minor findings uh, in your report and major findings or minor repeat findings can impact your ability to obtain your certification. The auditor inspector is here, just act normal, right? Don't, you know, a lot of these seem like they're, they're jokes and they're, they're meant to be kind of funny, but you know, you would be surprised at, at that I've actually seen some of these in, in play in industry, but uh, yeah, especially this bot, uh, bottom one where you just bring the coworker in, blame a coworker, pass that buck on. So this is one of my favorite uh, Dilberts. The internal auditors just showed up unannounced, delete all of our databases and make it look like an accident. Well, then they'd know I did it, but they wouldn't know I ordered it. So management with executive responsibility in any of these audit models is the one ultimately uh, responsible, whether they were aware or not or involved or not. So seriously, though, um, talking to auditors can be nerve wracking. So remain calm, listen to the questions carefully, answer the questions truthfully, don't volunteer any information, answer only the questions that were asked. So this is going to take some, some really active listening. That means that, that you need to pay attention to the words that the the auditor is using, and what are they really asking? What are they really trying to get to? Don't start uh, rambling and, and don't say things like, well, it's, this is how we do this, except for when and unless that, refer to your standard policies, procedures, and practices. It's the auditor's job to ask that next question and get to, well, what if it doesn't work that way? Or what if you have a deviation? So make them do their jobs and ask the next question, but don't be standoffish. If you're not sure, get the supervisor or the audit escort to bring in the right people to answer the question, ask for clarification from the supervisor or escort if you need to, get the experts involved, but don't see where the inspector's going and you don't want to answer the question, so you just throw your, your team member under the bus. So pointing fingers and casting blame on others in your organization, that's going to give the inspector um, a bad impression and the impression that there's no accountability and that there are no clear roles with defined resp um, responsibilities. So that's going to end up really just making you um, look bad. Have your records well organized and they need to stay in that state. Have an escort with the auditor at all times, even um, to walk them to the bathroom. Have a separate room for the auditor than your back room or wherever the records are being prepared. Bring the information to the auditor in a timely fashion. There is no better way to escalate an audit by making an auditor wait 
for documentation, they're going to start getting the impression that the, the ink's still wet, if you will, on the record that they asked for. And then they'll just start thinking that you have something to hide. And then their questions will get tougher and they'll dig deeper. And then, you know, be courteous. Their, their jobs suck just like everybody else's. They get, you know, people treat them mean and unfairly. And so, you know, just remember they're a human being too and they don't get treated very well and you can at least be nice and uh, that will go a long way. Clear communication is the key. So you, if the auditor asks like, it sounds like Charlie Brown to you, uh, Charlie Brown's teacher, and you don't understand what they're saying, ask for clarification, ask for it to be rephrased, ask to get somebody that you think will know the answer to the question to, to get involved and make sure you get the right people answering the right questions. And then also be you know, succinct and clear in your answers. Know your procedures so you don't have to look around for things. Uh, and you know, kind of try to anticipate where the auditor is going next. You know, this is just classic. If it isn't documented, it didn't happen. So audits hinge on there being objective, written, and verifiable evidence that shows that your record fulfills what your quality system procedures require. And without it, you won't have a successful audit. And then similarly, if you didn't do it, don't document it. And if you did do it, don't backdate the documentation. It needs to be created real time. So, so just make sure that, that you're having integrity in your creation of your quality management records and the application of your signature and your date. The end of the inspection is not the end of the race. You're not done. You're still gonna have to address any findings. You're gonna have to send the responses to your lead auditor or inspector. You need to open your CAPAs right away and see them through the entire process all the way through effectiveness and closure. And remember, they never forget. On the next audit, they will verify whatever they write up on either 483s, if it's the FDA, or in the audit report as major, minor, or scored findings for the other two audits. So uh, don't think that you can sweep it under the rug and it, it won't get seen again. Question come in. Juan says, is there a counterpart to GSPR and performance regulations for the U.S.? Or are those requirements for medical devices only determined in the QSR? So right now, there is no counterpart to the GSPR in the United States. Now, you know, whether it's going to end up dovetailing into GSPR or not, I will tell you that the FDA is starting to look at software as a medical device. So cybersecurity, data protocols, the way information is managed a lot more, but their regulation of it is still very early in, in their thinking. How often does the FDA inspector visit you? 
that's going to really depend on what the purpose of the audit is and what is politically going on at the FDA. For normal routine inspections, I would say, you know, probably two to seven years. I know that sounds a broad range, but I've seen some companies that seem to come up on a consistent workflow and some companies that should be audited and haven't in seven to 10 years. I personally think it has a little bit to do with how close you are to a field office. I've noticed um, some of my clients that are uh, particularly like in Chicago or the Northeast where there's uh, much more FDA personnel and field offices, they come up a little bit more consistently than those that require travel. I've also seen it though, where one company that I worked for or worked with a consultant for, they came up every year for five years, five years straight. And they did not get one 483 in five years. And we couldn't figure out why the FDA kept coming back because they also had no adverse events. Well, it turns out the particular prescribing methodology for this, this product kind of industry-wide, the FDA didn't, didn't like, but there was really nothing that they could do about it because the FDA can't, they don't, they have no jurisdiction over practice, over, over clinical practice. So they couldn't say anything about the prescribing methodology. But so what that, that, that yielded though, is that they had been going and inspecting companies that made this type of product over many years. And then they finally changed the regulation to allow um, the product to go from prescription use to OTC because effectively the workarounds that the doctors had done had made it OTC anyways. So that's just uh, an example. I had another client, one I mentioned in Canada, that came up on this supposed four-cause list, even though they had a very low volume of product and they hadn't had any issues with reportable events. Their product, their particular product code kept showing up on an FDA workflow. So the FDA came to them two years in a row. And then as soon as FDA went back in person after COVID, they tried to schedule another audit. So it's a little bit of a crapshoot.